Hello and welcome to yet another transformative episode of the Climate Voices podcast, where I consider basically your conduit to the change makers shaping our world's present and future. This podcast is a unique platform where we aim to break silos and bridge the communication gap between policymakers, researchers, and scientists, climate activists, and community practitioners from around the globe. Today's episode is quite a unique episode, uh, unique because for the first time I have a co-host who happens to be uh, my former classmate and colleague at grad school, Marisa Kulkarni. So um, welcome to the podcast again, Marisa. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um... And I guess my short background is that we were in school together at graduate school at Clark University. And now I'm doing geospatial data science in the renewables energy, which is really interesting. Yeah, for anyone who's listening out there, anyone who's watching this, Marisa is one of the you know best guys I've known in GIS. So if you need any help, <laughs> GIS, Marisa is your you know go-to person. Yeah, so today we journey across the borders and disciplines and you know joining a unique nexus um, between academia, research, and advocacy, uh, and also through action. So our esteemed guest is a seasoned professor at Clark University, you know, has footsteps imprinted in the soils of not just here in Massachusetts, but also in other areas that he has been working in Africa and Latin America. Uh, So welcome to the show, Professor Downs. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's an honor to have you as our guest today. And I must say, Professor Downs, I know um, you know you are a titan in the field of you know social and environmental <laughs> justice, as well as climate justice and engineering hope and you know resilience amid this climate climate change. But could you briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your journey and experience and you know some of the work that you've been doing in the past as well as present? So my name is Tim Downs. Um, I'm a professor of environmental science and policy at Clark University. Uh, I've been there for 22 years and um, my work looks at uh, the intersection of global environmental change, uh, specifically pollution and climate change with public health um, and water resources in particular. I'm very interested in who is most impacted by global environmental change and particularly climate change and pollution. Uh, So I work in close collaboration with a diverse set of social actors. Um, uh, We are very committed to working with local communities who are the most often the most impacted by um, environmental change. Um, But we also work with policymakers, uh, with other researchers at other institutions, with nonprofits and with businesses. So we're very much invested in uh, this co-creation enterprise, we can call it, really very committed to collaborative work. Yeah, and you're going to be starting soon on some of that collaborative work um, in Mexico City, right? So you're going to be looking at some uh, water security issues and working with the local students and communities there. Yes, uh, Marissa, so you you guys have heard me talk about this new project for a while, um, and uh, we're, we're very excited to be starting a new collaborative project in central Mexico, and we're looking at um, how climate change is impacting water resources. Uh, both groundwaters and surface waters, um, who is most impacted by that water scarcity and water stress, 
and in turn, how that stress and change in water resources is impacting agriculture, livelihoods, um, health, and also ecosystems. So we're not just looking at human impacts, we're also looking at um, other kinds of ecological impacts on other species. So yeah, this is sort of the culmination of a lot of work over many, many years. Um, and I'm really excited to be collaborating with um, folks that I've worked with before in Mexico City. Uh, specifically, we're working with collaborators at the National Sustainability Laboratory um, at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, UNAM. Um, and those guys are our main academic partners on this new project. Uh, I should also mention this is a project funded by um, National Science Foundation's Partnerships for International Research and Education from 2023 through 2026. Um, and it has a lot of exciting moving parts to it, uh, which we can expand on a little bit later. Um, one of the things I'm most excited about is that um, we're going to be having students in the field for six months at a time. So Clark students will, will be working in the field for six months alongside their, uh, their peers um, from UNAM. So we'll have Clark and UNAM master's level students working together in collaborative teams, which is very exciting. So this is ushering in, you know, really a, a new approach to graduate education that is placing field-based learning very much at the center. We really believe that that needs to be much stronger. Um, we also have some doctoral students as well working on, on the project. Yeah, thank you so much, Professor, for that uh, intro and looking at, at the work that you're doing at the moment. Uh, you know, you've mentioned things about what and uh, from your classes, one, one thing I picked, you usually, you know, say it always is that water is the move and shake of everything. So apparently with the advent of climate change, what we have seen is uh, community is impacted by water scarcity and water security is important and uh, as you've mentioned climate change is impacting that you know mostly and with your working uh, with the communities in Mexico so will you briefly talk about why water security is important and how it affects with you know issues of climate justice issues of social justice and uh, mm -hmm. climate keeps changing yes um so you're you're correct you've heard me say that water is the move and shaker of pollution and of nutrients and of material moving around the planet. Um, that's actually a quote from my doctoral advisor from many, many years ago, Mel Suffet from UCLA. So uh, I can't take full credit for that, but um, I, I use it a lot in my work. Um, so I think we can all agree that the impacts of climate change are very complicated. Um, um, these changes are happening at different scales, both spatial and temporal scales. They're um, impacting some places more than others. There's a lot of uncertainty and variability and complexity in trying to figure out what does climate change mean for different places, different people, different ecosystems. And, um, and even if we can figure that out, and that's certainly what we're trying to do. Um, then, what do you do with that knowledge? You know, how can you how can you apply that knowledge to actually respond to climate change in a positive way, reduce the impacts, and secure a more sustainable and climate just future? So that's you know, in essence, that's what we're taking on. You know, how do you interrogate this complex series and system of, of, of different kinds of impacts? How do you figure out who's most impacted, um, and what can we do to respond? Um, those are the that's really the narrative that we're, we're trying to articulate. Um, and why water? Um, well, we're a water planet. You know, there wouldn't be life without water. Water is essential for everything. Um, it's fundamental. Um, and so we use water as a gateway. You can think of it sort of like as an entryway, a doorway into thinking about complex climate change 
change impacts. Um, think about how you know precipitation might be changing and temperature might be changing or is changing. Both temperature and precipitation changes have an impact on the water balance. They're going to have an impact on rainfall, um, runoff, evapotranspiration, infiltration, all of those components of the water cycle um, have the potential to be impacted quite significantly. And so that's where we begin. You know, our approach is to use water as the gateway, as I said. And then once we can figure out and co-create this understanding of impacts on water, then we can also then think about, well, how do those impacts on water impact agriculture, food systems, subsistence livelihoods, you know, those communities dependent on, on agriculture for their livelihoods? Um, how do impacts to water impact public health? Um, uh, that's also, you know, direct connection between climate, water, and health. Um, and then the ecosystem side of it is also really important. You know, it's not just humans that are being impacted by changes in, in, in water. Um, it's also other species and some ecosystems, like some populations, are more sensitive to those changes than others. You've, um, you've mentioned systems a few times here, and I know that that's something we talked about a lot in class and in our coursework. Um, and I would be really interested to hear how this systems thinking perspective has shaped your approach to addressing the environmental issues and also how you're bringing this into the classroom with the students um, and any plans of like how you're going to like create system thinkers throughout this Mexico City project. Yes, thank you for that question. Um, so I, I've, I've always been a systems thinker. I, my, my training is, is in engineering and I've always been thinking about how things are connected to other things and how the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and how all of these different things work together. Um, so that's how I'm sort of programmed to think anyway. Um, and I've just been struck as, a, as an academic teaching and doing research um, that we really don't do a very good job in the academy of um, helping students learn in a systems-based way, you know, learn about how things are connected to other things. You know, students take courses in one thing or the other. Um, you take a course of study. And for the most part, students are left to figure out how these different things connected, right? And you know that from your own experience. So what we're trying to do with this project and what we're trying to really emphasize is that, well, we actually inherently know, like intuitively, these biological, these ecological and social systems are, are dynamic, they're complex. Um, the, the different components of the social system are interconnected with ecological systems, and so it's all one system, right? Um, and they're dynamic in space and time, um, and so we need to be educating students uh, with that recognition. And what I'm really excited about is that we're bringing um, different tools into the project, different approaches and, and perspectives and methodologies um, that really allow us to interrogate and get to grips with um, the complexity of these systems. Um, in particular, you mentioned GIS and at the beginning, um, Marisa, and I know that you, you are working extensively in that area. Um, so we're very interested in bringing GIS and geospatial analysis um, together with what's called system dynamics modeling. So system dynamics modeling is the tool that we use to actually try and understand how different things are related to each other. Um, and those that particular tool is primarily used by 
um, engineers and natural scientists, um, ecologists typically use system dynamics modeling to understand um, the stocks and flows of, of energy and materials in an ecosystem, for example, right? Um, engineers use it extensively in trying to figure out water balance and that kind of thing. Um, but what we want to try and do, and it's really exciting to think in, in this way, is bring that capability, that ability to try and grapple with and understand dynamic systems um, to all students, undergrad, grad, whether you're in the natural sciences, engineering, social sciences, or the humanities, we're, we're really committed to trying to bring all of these tools, make them accessible to students in all different fields. Um, it's not acceptable to me that that particular methodology, for example, and one could say the same about GIS and geospatial, that those things are in the hands of just a few people or, you know, that only a few people have the ability to actually engage with those kinds of methodologies and tools. Um, those should be available to students in a full spectrum of different fields so that then those different fields can really come together and work mm. collaboratively uh, because that's what it's going to take. Um, you know, if we really want to understand how climate change is impacting the world and who's most impacted and so forth, we've got to bring to bear all of the different ways of knowing, all of the different tools and methodologies, um, types of data, types of information. Um, we've got to bring together tools from social science, for example, um, ethnography, you know, um, oral histories, um, all of these different traditional and, and, and academic ways of knowing things need to be integrated and brought together. Um, so it's not just about academic knowledge and it's not just about GIS and systems modeling. Um, what we're trying to do with this project is also make this a, an authentic partnership, knowledge partnership with local communities. Uh, without place-based and indigenous knowledge, we do not have the ability to understand this com this complexity. Uh, and we don't have the ability to understand how climate change is impacting different people in different places. We simply have to invest in co-creating knowledge resources and diverse ways of knowing things so that we can have a shared understanding of what's happening and why it matters. Yeah, thank you so much. Professor Downs, you mentioned about who is impacted. That's something I picked from you because, again, climate change impacts, you know, different communities or different people at different scales or capacities. So yeah. work, not just in Mexico, I understand you've been working uh, quite extensively for the past almost three decades, uh, you know, in Africa too. So yeah. And I mean, climate change impacts different people, especially those uh, in Africa or in the global south, differently, uh, disproportionately impacts them compared to you know, other populations in the global north. So which raises a question of social justice, uh, you know, for mm -hmm. and climate justice. So for this project that you have chosen, for instance, to work in, in Mexico, I mean, I'm imagining there are some communities in that region, or is it called Toluca, who were impacted more than mm other communities, so which raises this issue of, uh, you know, climate yeah. social justice. So how are you addressing it again from that angle, mm. uh, social justice? Right. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so the issue of systemic social injustice and environmental and climate injustice is becoming more and more pressing and important to understand and address. 
if you look at the latest assessment reports uh, report of the Inter- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the, the assessment report number six, if you did a, a search for the word climate, for the words climate justice in that report, it, you would have thousands of hits. It's just, it's showing up as it should in high level reports, documents. It's showing up more and more in the literature. Um, it's something that we really need to get serious about, right? And as you point out, Omesa, you know, it's the fundamental injustice question is that these kinds of environmental changes are impacting those who are least responsible for them in the first place and least able to adapt and cope uh, with the impact. So that makes it a very serious and really most pressing uh, priority for us to be thinking about um, the justice question. Um, And uh, connected to what we just talked about, systems thinking, you know, uh, it's very interesting that, you know, in society at large, we're becoming more comfortable with thinking about questions of social injustice as being systemic, and they are systemic. The evidence is very clear. Um, so if they're systemic, we should be able to model them as such, right? In other words, okay, we have systemic environmental injustice or systemic climate injustice. We can model that as a system of injustice, right? And we can figure out, okay, why is it that some people are much more vulnerable to impacts than others? And what can we do about that? And while we're on this subject, um, I mentioned that we are working very closely with local communities in the region. We're always interested in the question, who is being most impacted and why? And then how do we collaborate with with people who are being most impacted, right? In other words, you know, the marginalized communities of the world who are most impacted, uh, we need to make special efforts and and, um, invest particular kinds of dedication and energy to connecting and collaborating with those communities um, in a way that is beneficial to them, that is not exploitive or extractive in any way. On the contrary, It's really saying, we see you, we're interested in your stories, how can we work together? It's all about working together with respect um, and with a common mission, right, to interrogate these issues and and address them. Yeah, so there was a a previous episode of the podcast on maladaptation, which I think feeds a little bit nicely into that. And I was wondering, um, as someone who's like lived and worked in several different countries, if you've noticed how social and environmental or climate justice might be framed differently in the global north versus like sometimes countries in the global south and are those different framings are they completely different from another are they really like meeting up with each other because mm. that that's also like the global injustice and the global environmental change and are we really talking about the same things um right. you know when we talk about that. Yeah. So um, I have worked in a number of different places, um, Latin America, Africa, Europe, North North America. And my own experience is that the fundamental drivers um, of systemic environmental and social injustice are the same where, wherever you are. Um, oftentimes, these are things that are rooted in um, long-term um, systemic racism or other other forms of systemic injustice. Um, to understand them, you really have to interrogate, you know, the history of why some people are more marginalized than others. And in order to do that, you need to go into the realm of politics and power dynamics and be also modeling systems of power. 
and talking about political power, right? So who has power? Um, who makes decisions? Why are they making the decisions that they're making? You know, how, you know, how is it benefiting? Uh, who is it benefiting, right? So these questions of, you know, decision making and power and politics are absolutely crucial. One has to get to grips with that. Um, and in our project, in our Central Mexico project, we're trying to do just that. Um, you know, it's not going to be sufficient to just assemble different kinds of knowledge and understanding and um, ways of knowing things. We've got to really figure out how to um, improve the way that we make decisions, improve the participation and the engagement in the decision-making process um, by those who are typically marginalized from that process. Um, so why, why do we continue to have the problems that we have? I mean, the simple explanation is that we're not really transforming the way we're doing stuff. We're just tweaking things. Um, you mentioned maladaptation. Um, you know, we can be changing things in ways that actually have unintended consequences and we could even be making things worse. Um, so that brings us back to understanding things as social ecological systems. Unless we can do that, we're not then going to have the ability to actually critically question current development practice, current responses to climate change or, or planned responses to climate change, right? Um, you know, we, we tend to get sort of, even, even if you just for a moment think about, you know, trying to make decisions decisions in a climate of uncertainty. Um, even if you're a someone who has a, a, a conscience as a, and a socially just mindset and you're committed to that, um, we need to have the ability to um, try and compare different alternative ways of responding and acting. Right. Well, if we were to do X versus Y, A versus B, you know, how would those different actions or ways of responding, how do those things compare? Right. What, how are we going to be able to figure out, you know, what is a more sustainable and climate resilient and socially just trajectory that we can follow going into the future? Um, how do you actually figure that out? Um, and that's what our new project is, is also, I mean, the, we are, we're, we're, we're pioneering some new approaches to trying to transform decision making, not just the knowledge generation or co-generation or co-production. Uh, we're also trying to really innovate and um, transform the way decisions are being made. Um, and uh, one of the things we're bringing to bear on that is um, extended reality. Um, you've probably heard of virtual reality and my my colleagues um, at Clark who are experts in virtual and extended reality, um, uh, they're involved in the project so that we're bringing the extended reality technology um, in in connection with the GIS analysis and the systems modeling so that we can actually simulate different alternative future pathways, uh, different climate change scenarios and different development scenarios, um, and actually inhabit those virtually um, with the diversity of stakeholders who are involved in our project. So imagine doing that. That completely transforms um, one's ability to think about the future um, and how you make, make a decision uh, to go one path, uh, choose one path path over another path. Um, right now, quite honestly, um, how decisions are being made um, is um, not just grossly inadequate. Um, uh, it, it's also uh, very few people have the ability to actually engage with that or participate with uh, participate in decision making in a meaningful way. Um, you know, it's left up to policy analysts or, you know, uh, people trained in different kinds of decision tools. And um, so much of it is completely opaque and and not 
really working the way that we need it to work. Um, so you, you may have heard, um, it's interesting, I, I've been speaking to some of my colleagues who are involved in the, um, the assessment reports and, you know, doing these, um, these, these high-level reports every few years. Um, and there's a summary for policymakers that is published um, that sort of sits atop of this huge endeavor every few years. Um, and um, one of my colleagues who's an, who's an author on, on the assessment report is quite open about um, the, the realization that they're having that the policymakers don't read the summary for policymakers. So it's a shorter document, yes, than the working group reports and so forth, but it's still you know, a fairly long document, very detailed. So that really struck me. I was in a conversation recently about that. And, you know, so we're producing these summaries for policymakers that policymakers don't read. Um, that's a big problem. Um, and um, also, we're just, I don't know, we're just, we, we seem to be stuck in this, you know, this sort of top-down mode of making decisions and top-down mode of trying to understand and respond to climate change. We've got to completely turn that upside down, reimagine it um, so that different stakeholder groups, particularly local communities that are impacted most, can fully participate in the co-creation of that knowledge and also the decision-making process about what are we going to do in the face of these challenges um, and, and how do those different alternative trajectories compare with each other? Um, what, are the, what are the different kinds of impacts that would result um, from continuing to, for example, continuing to manage water the way we have managed it for a long time versus doing something transformative with water resources in the face of climate change? Um, so the new project, that's, that's really what we're going after. We're going after the, this big challenge of how we integrate the knowledge co-creation and the shared decision-making. You have to build the decision-making and the knowledge co-creation into the design of your project. Otherwise, you're always going to have these two parts to the, the work. You'll have people who do the knowledge piece, right? And then you'll have people who do the decision-making. And you're always trying to figure out, well, how does the knowledge inform the decision-making? You know, how does the science, if you will, or the knowledge that's created, how does that get translated into action? And the reality is that not very well is the answer typically um, so there's this this disconnect and it's becoming even more evident under climate change right we've simply got to reimagine how we co-create knowledge and how we make decisions and those two things have to be built in to the same project design basically you've got to build those things in to the projects that you do in the face of climate change like i mentioned before actually what i'm reading from you like having different people producing knowledge and the ones who are supposed to consume don't even consume it kind of leads to a siloed approach which is not even working at all and right. We made reference to the summary for the policymakers have had an opportunity of looking at those in the past. And even what is called the summary is actually a very long document, so which ends up not being read at all. And that's right. like at the end, you know, the target audience at that matter. So any decisions which are made are not even uh, using the science that is supposed to be or is intended to inform the decisions. So yes. as you were, you know, critically talking about that, I picked something when you were, you know, challenging you're saying uh talking about the power dynamics and who gets to make the decisions about mm. if that we are doing and how that
that impacts the communities. So here we are talking about the policymakers who are not even using the science. And over the years, I'm imagining uh, from your work across the continent, you have mentioned your work the planet. So my question is, um, have you seen any kind of you know evolution where we are able to challenge the power dynamics. Is there any hope or is it over the period that you've been working? Is it, um, you know, business as usual? Or mm-hmm. is there hope? Um, is there any evolution in, in terms of um, yeah. positions and how they impact uh, communities, especially now that uh, climate change is happening so quickly? Mm-hmm. Um, so there is reason to be hopeful. Um, there are examples of projects that are using this co-creation approach that I've been mentioning. Um, And what we see um, when we look at um, what works and what doesn't work is that the projects that really invest in co-creation, you know, in in like collaborations that mean something to local communities and also to policymakers, and that these two groups actually do work together, um, that there's a commitment to doing that. um, Those kinds of projects rise way above business as usual kinds of typical top-down um, approaches to uh, sustainability challenges. Um, that's what distinguishes them. Um, so we, we've got experience of doing this work ourselves, but there are also, you know, over the many decades of development projects, for example, um, you can look at, well, which what are the development projects that have actually had sustained positive impact? What are the ones that have actually worked to improve uh, um, the livelihoods and the health of, of, of people who, who are being impacted by uh by different kinds of environmental change or resource um, scarcity. Uh, The projects that succeed do this kind of co-creative work. Um, It's really the only, it's it's the solution. I mean, if if you don't invest in that, um, then you're basically just um, continuing with a business as usual approach. Um, And we have abundant evidence that that is not an approach that works. Um, it, it doesn't result in sustainable, socially just outcomes. Um, where you do see these smaller number of projects, and it's but it, there are a distinct number of projects that invest in this kind of um, of social enterprise. Um, those are the ones that that um, distinguish themselves, um, and uh, and it makes sense, right? Um, when you actually look at the nature of the challenges involved, uh, that knowledge is disconnected from decision making. Well, the project that but invest in actually connecting those deliberately, <laughs> like in the in their own design, that they conceive of connecting those things from the get-go and invest in it. Those projects are transformative because that's where the difference lies. Um, and those projects that invest in building lasting, um, mutually respectful relationships with civil society, business, government, academia, those projects also, if, if, if they're authentically being driven by this co-creation uh, commitment uh, where everyone's contributing, but everyone, everyone's also um, receiving benefits and that, that really the, the, the level of effort involved in these projects and what economists like to call transaction costs, those are, uh, those are reasonable and, and the benefits far outweigh uh, the cost um, and uh, the positive impacts outweigh the, the negative impacts. And you're really getting to grips with the justice question, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, if you keep skirting around that question because it's too hard or you just don't want to go there, guess what? It never gets resolved. It just persists, right? Well, that's not good enough, right? And we shouldn't, you know, it, we have the ability collectively to understand these complex problems and respond positively. We, we have that ability 
We just need to reimagine how we work together. I know that uh, community engagement, it's really big at Clark University and it's really big with the department and with you in this program. Um, my my uh, intuition is telling me that it's not something that's always so big within the scientific community, like researchers and professors in universities. Sometimes they just kind of like, you know, come in, do a project, swoop in and swoop out. Right. So could you talk a little bit to kind of that, that listener community, like professors and researchers of how this approach differs or like why it's so important or kind of, yeah. you know, what you see as some barriers that maybe people don't expect to do when they try to do more of this type of research. Yeah. Um, so um, this kind of work, uh, it goes by various different names. Um, in the early years, we used to refer to it as sort of participatory research. Um, other times you, you you hear it referred to as community engaged research. Um, and you're right, there's a, there's a you know, you know, there has been traditionally a sort of a small group of researchers that really commit to that um, and believe that this is the way that we should be tackling social and ecological problems. It's it's still, I would say, um, a, a group that's far too small. Um, but we're trying to grow that consciousness. Um, we train our students to think that way, to co-create, um, and not just graduate students, but also undergraduate students. We, we try to give them more and more experiences of doing that kind of work, right? Um, a lot of my my own work is in the um, in, in the health domain, right? Uh, I mentioned water and also health. So um, uh, when I when I work with um, other academics, um, other researchers who are um, trained in sort of biomedical fields, you know, maybe they're um, epidemiologists or biostatisticians, or um, uh, maybe they have expertise in uh, in um, genomics or other other aspects of biology. Um, it's really interesting because uh, those traditional uh, bioscientific fields. Um, you're not really trained at all in any kind of community engaged work. <laughs> you, you know, you're very much trained with the sort of biomedical kind of classic perspective. Um, and yet when you actually sit down and talk to folks in, in with that kind of training and perspective, um, it doesn't take long to make the argument that, well, if you really want to understand, you know, what it's like for, for people to live in a place and how pollution might be impacting them or what kinds of health problems they're experiencing. It's really quite absurd to, you know, try and do it as someone who sort of parachutes in and then leaves and, you know, never really listens to people who are experiencing the problems, never really tries to catalog or document um, the oral history, for example, or the, or the uh, you know, what is it like to live in a place like this? How are things changing? What's going on? Um, all of that rich narrative, um, information, story, um, oral history, ethnography, um, those things absolutely need to be brought to bear. Um, and I have used this argument on some of my, you know, more conservative, conservative in the scientific sense, you know, colleagues in the biosciences of like, you know, to understand health problems related to environment and address them, um, you simply have to use local knowledge, indigenous knowledge, um, narrative, as well as your traditional quantitative and quality, qualitative and geospatial forms of information and analysis, right? If you were just to do the geospatial, you know this, Marisa. You know, you'd have one perspective. If you were to just to do, the, you know, the sampling of water quality and testing of, you know, biospecimens, you'd have a quantitative picture of what's going 
Um, but it's only when you bring all of these two things together, right? The narrative, the geospatial, um, the quantitative, the qualitative, qualitative, you bring those things together, you can create, you have the, the capacity to create an adequate model of what's actually going on. Absent that, you just will never have the ability to really understand what's happening. Yeah, thank you so much, Professor. I, I know you are, you're a big proponent of co-creation and you, you keep saying about co-creation and, and multi-stakeholder engagements and those, those are some of the approaches that you've been using. There are a number of our listeners and uh, viewers who will benefit from your knowledge. So, I mean, we are coming to the end of this. So I would like to ask if you see any hope, uh, you know, going forward in terms of the work that you're doing, any recommendations that you could give one who's interested in this kind of work. Yes, thank you. Uh, there is hope. There's reason to be hopeful. Um, I mean, if you just look around the United States at what's happening in terms of people mobilizing against social injustice, for example, um, I mean, you're seeing levels of mobilization and, and uh, again, social injustice that, you've, that we've not seen before. So that's a cause for, that's a reason to be hopeful. You know, people do care. Most people really care about what's going on. Um, and uh, But we do need to really look in the mirror and say, well, what's my role in this, right? You know, and, and uh, I particularly, you know, think it's important for those in positions of privilege, um, and I certainly count myself as such a person, you know, to be thinking about, well, you know, how can I contribute? You know, how can I help, you know, make a difference, and, you know, in the various things that I do as a teacher, as a community member, as a parent, you know, what what do I need to be doing, right? And then how can I partner with other people who are, for the most part, you know, people are, most people are pretty good. They're, they're well-intentioned. And we need to seek people out who, who are really trying to figure things out and make a more just world for the future. And and really, you know, be serious about that commitment. It's the same kind of work that, that the civil rights activists and the civil rights leaders have been doing for, 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 for generations, right? It's that level of commitment. Um, I sometimes point to those pioneers and I think, well, you know, that's it's the work of a lifetime and it's a work of generations, to be quite honest. Um, but we can't hang, we can't just sort of sit back and say, oh, you know, I can't do anything. We can't do anything. We've got to be doing stuff now. <laughs> I mean, urgently. Right. Uh, and also recognize that this is we're going to need to be in this for the long haul. Um, and I do think that educators and I do think that universities and higher ed institutions have a particularly important role to play. You know, we're we're, we're in a position where we create knowledge, co-create knowledge, we do research, we teach, um, we have impacts on society, uh, hopefully we advocate for a just society. Um, you know, universities have tremendous power and I think we're only just using a little, we're not using enough of that power to really um, be champions of a just future, quite honestly. I think we can be doing more, uh, a lot more. I think we can reimagine our own role in society um, and be the champion and facilitators of this of this co-creation enterprise because that's for me and not just for me but for others too uh, that's really the only way we're going to be able to understand and, and, and address these complex problems thank you so much um, Marisa do you have any quick words no fighting shots uh, but it was great it was great to be here thanks for inviting me it's really nice to just sit and talk again would you guys permit me because I, I up until recently I was your your teacher and mentor and I, I wanted to turn the table on you and just say what well, you know what are your reasons for being hopeful 
I, you know, do, are you hopeful? Yeah, I mean, um, listening to all the people um, that I've been sharing, especially for this podcast, and seeing the kind of work that people have been actually doing, it fills me with hope. And getting to be involved with young people, because I've been involved in a couple of occasions with young people, and seeing the kind mm-hmm. of work they do and the kind of language they, they, they use in, you know, some of their work, I get filled with a lot of hope because, again, young people are not even complaining all the time they are actually coming up with solutions because all the time we have been complaining and complaining but that doesn't give any solution for actually now being part of the solution and you know being part of the policy making processes being part of the elective positions because that's where the solutions are made because you actually talked about challenging the power dynamic and i've seen a lot of young people stepping up into those spaces and it gives me a lot of hope good yeah um i think so i think sometimes i get a little hopeless because i spend too much time in the data um yeah. and that's yeah. that's the, a little bit of the caveat of gis is you kind of look at the numbers a little bit too much but uh i think when i remembered to listen and when i remember to listen to especially the young people who are just mm-hmm. fire at at all of this and they're so passionate and they know because it's their lives and their families and everything like that and when i also look around at the world and the country and my family and where different disasters are hitting i know that we don't have any option except to be hopeful because we have mm-hmm. to change it because it's going to change mm-hmm. yeah actually professor downs the one of the episodes i did was with um, some of my former classmates uh you taught all of us and that one of the topics you addressed was climate anxiety and young people have always been filled with climate anxiety and these okay. young people uh, including um, andrew and and Kat and mahalet all of them talked about how they're addressing this and mm-hmm. what we said we can't afford to preach you know hopelessness we can't afford right. to, to to preach despair all we can mm-hmm. do is preach hope and hope some somehow something is gonna happen mm-hmm. and be part of that you know something we can't mm-hmm. skip saying something hope something happens or um hope someone does something but we have to mm-hmm. change language to what can i do as a person right. individual i mean being part of the solution so um i'm i'm glad we're ending on the note of how young people are the most important group of all since the future is theirs um uh, one of the most in- exciting components of, of our new project is that we are going to be working with middle and high school students in central mexico to try and understand how climate change is impacting their lives um we're going to be um, making some climate and weather stations with them and deploying those weather stations um, and then taking the data and and feeding it into our uh, climate change atlas that we're building. We're going to be co-creating. And the important thing is that these young people are going to be central collaborators and um, they're going to be partners with us. Uh, And that's that's really important. You've got to bring the young people in and make them partners um, in this important enterprise. Uh, I love that. I love them being able to kind of like look at their community and study it and have that whole project that they get to be a part of yeah yeah it's been really amazing mm. thank you so much again for having you marisa as my co-host and professor downs thank you for sharing your insight uh, about the work that you've been doing and sharing the message of hope and we hope to do this again sometime and uh thank you for your time uh this you're is most the- welcome this is podcast yeah. and i was your host omesa mukaya and my co-host marisa thank you so much thank you thank you Take care.